Uh, hey, if you could grab your seats uh, and open your, it's in your bulletin there, you can see it, or uh, if you have a Bible or an app, a Bible app, it's uh, Exodus chapter 40, verses 16 through 38. Uh, Alex is going to be reading for us. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put up the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put up the table and the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in the place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle with the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord was filled in the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud was settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over, uh, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you uh, include everything that you do in the scriptures for us to understand you, for us to know you, for, for us to see you from different angles. Uh, and, and to build up uh, our understanding of you and our love for you and our security in your love for us and, and to see more clearly the power of the gospel of Jesus breaking through and saving sinners like us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So my name's Justin. I'm a pastor here. Uh, a couple logistical things before we, we dive in. Um, yeah, I, I worked with a pastor once who uh, was very adamant that the, the temperature in the room would always be a little bit cool. Always be a little bit cool because his, his principle was 
that will keep people from falling asleep uh, while I'm talking. So I promise that's not actually what's happening. Uh, if the, there's the temperature here is a little bit cooler, we are very, very grateful to uh, Ambrose that we're, we're using their space here. They just went through this new um, system here, so we haven't gotten that uh, readjusted. We're working on that. Um, so uh, bundle up, you know. Um, and uh, the other thing of note, um, we have, if you're, if you're not aware yet, our Christmas Eve service will be on Christmas Eve. Uh, and that will be at 5 p.m. right here. So uh, 5 p.m., put that on your calendars. Uh, and particularly be thinking about, praying about, um, if you know anybody, you know, particularly somebody who's not connected with a church, not connected regularly with uh, a, a church community that you could uh, invite, and we'd love to have them here. It's a great opportunity um, to bring them in to share good news about Jesus. So uh, we're in this series in Advent about the ways that God shows up. And you know, I got to apologize uh, last week, um, and, uh, and, and you all were very gracious. Nobody said anything to me, but uh, I said I was introducing a new word, theophany. I'm sure many of you knew that word. So, uh, but that's what we're talking about. That's the, the, the term for what's happening here. It's, it's ways that God shows up. Uh, and, and we see different times throughout the Bible, obviously building up to the clearest, fullest way that God will ever show up, that's through Jesus. So that's what we're looking at, uh, and this week we are looking at the tabernacle, which I'm sure for all of you is in your top ten favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, you just love, love studying the tabernacle. Um, and so, uh, a little bit of, of background here to, to catch you up, or uh, reminder. Tabernacle, it's the place that God assigns, he, he sort of sets up to meet with his people, Israel, after the Exodus. They've come out of Egypt, and they're, all of their wilderness wanderings, this is where they are. They're in this tabernacle, and then when they get to the promised land, that's, again, it, it sits in one place, but it's the tabernacle. This is the place where God meets with his people, intends for them to meet with him uh, for, for all the time they're there until Solomon later builds the temple, uh, which then is like the permanent version of the tabernacle. So for hundreds of years, this is the place that God wants his people to meet with him, uh, he's showing himself to them as to this is who God is. This is how he wants his people to interact, is through the tabernacle. Uh, and, you know, in the book of Exodus, uh, you know, probably typically don't spend a, an abundance of time uh, on the tabernacle. It's not that exciting. Uh, but it's actually one-third of the book of Exodus about is taken up with the tabernacle. It's instructions on how this is to be built, how it's to be set up, and then it's the actual building. It's the actual um, putting it in place, and then the uh, furniture, the articles that go into the tabernacle. It's, it's a large chunk of the book. And uh, so the, the key thing, though, there's a lot that we could learn from the tabernacle. The key thing I want to zero in for this sermon, though, is these layers. Right? There's these layers of distinction or different zones in the tabernacle. And the central zone, and by the way, you can see this on the, the flip side of your bulletin. It's in there. You know, sometimes helpful to have a visual. So it's, it's in the bulletin. Um, 
the, the central place, you have the Holy of Holies. All right? and, and this is only the high priest goes there one time a year. And outside of that, you have the holy place. And this is where you have select uh, priests from one tribe of Israel were allowed to go here. Uh, and then outside that, you have the courtyard. And that's where you could have any Israelite would come. They could bring sacrifices. They could have a priest meet with them and, uh, and offer those. And, and then if you were an unclean person, you would never really allowed past that first barrier. You, you weren't allowed inside the tabernacle. So that, that's sort of the last layer. Now, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, back in 2013, so this is almost 10 years ago, uh, there was uh, a woman who was uh, the head of a PR firm, rather small company, and uh, she was getting on a plane that was going to go to Africa. And uh, right before she's sitting in the plane, right, and she makes this uh, joke, just sort of ill-worded, not really well thought through, and uh, in, in how she, she puts this tweet together. Uh, and then before her plane lands in Africa, she's fired. Uh, wasn't what she intended, but what, what happens is that there is this media firestorm over this, right? That just swirls up this frenzy of anger about this lady. Uh, and, and there's just thousands of people that just kind of glob in and they're retweeting and shaming her uh, and saying she's, she's got to go, and she does. And it stands out in my mind because this was kind of the tip of the iceberg in many ways of the, the shaming and cancel culture that we all live in today. Uh, and I think it was you know, particularly remarkable because this... This lady, right, it's striking, this lady was not uh, by any means a public figure, right? Which you, you know, if you're a celebrity, you're kind of invited, it's sort of an occupational hazard. You invite some of this possibility of, um, you know, public outcry against you, but she, she really wasn't. And, and, you know, you have this, um, the power of this virtually overnight destruction of your reputation, right, that, that can happen through the power of social media, and, and that's, um, that's drawing people in. And, you know, the, the issue or the phenomenon of public shaming is not really anything new uh, in history. I mean, this is something that's taken place throughout all of history, through every culture, this happens. But the, the reality is that our, our tool of the internet has made this possible in kind of a an instantaneous mob rule sort of frenzy that, that's actually quite frightening. And, you know, my, my point in all of this is that the reality, the situation that we live in today actually makes the terms that we're going to talk about from this passage very, very relevant, right, to, to the struggles and the difficulties that we have with, um, with, with shame and guilt and, and, and what you do with those things. Um, because you know we live in a world today that is very, very adept, right? It's very sophisticated, very skilled in generating shame as a means of punishment. But then the flip side of this is we have virtually no real path, typically, to restoration. There's there's not really any way for the shamed person to be made whole again. 
right? To, to be made better. And, and I think this becomes more obvious and, and probably more painful uh, on an interpersonal level. You, you know, you, you have the wrong person and you say the wrong thing to them, you do the wrong thing to them, and you're, you're just done, right? You're just cut off, you're can't, you might as well be dead. And, and so the main point for us, I, I want us to get from this passage about the tabernacle right, and how Jesus' work relates to the tabernacle, is that Jesus is the way out of shame into acceptance. Jesus is the way out of shame into acceptance. So, uh, as we think about how God meets with, how God shows up uh, to his people, how he shows himself, uh, what we're going to do with this tabernacle, we're going to look at these various layers of distinction that, that I just mentioned. And we're going to look at how Jesus tears down all of these barriers between us and God. Uh, And then lastly, we're going to try to answer the question of what does it mean to be a holy person who is being made holy? What does that look like? So first of all, I want to look at and think about these layers of distinction in the tabernacle. As you read through here what's happening with Moses' work, hopefully it should be obvious that uh, these uh, the building, the, the carrying out of these plans, it's not like Moses is doing this as a one-man show. It's happening under Moses' supervision. And uh, what the passage does, it starts in the central place, and then it goes outward from there. And so that, that's how I want to kind of move through this. But before that, I actually want to jump down to the very end. Look, you look at the very end of this passage, and what you find there, you see God's presence God's presence comes and it descends on this tabernacle in this glory cloud. It's also, by the way, tabernacle, also called the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord fills this tabernacle and and no one, not even Moses, can even get in. The presence of God's glory is just too intense. So a, a couple of things here. The first one is when... God's presence comes, and this glory cloud later shows up in this pillar of fire. God is trying to make clear, abundantly so, that what this is, this is no man-made contraption. But this is, in fact, God's assigned way of how the people of Israel, his people, are to understand him. How they are to see him, how they are to interact with him, is through this tabernacle. Second thing. There is a fullness of God's presence that no human being can bear. It's not Moses, not Aaron, not anybody else. And God actually made this clear a few chapters earlier. If you're familiar with Exodus, back in chapter 33, some of you may remember this, um, Moses, you know, he, he's going through this struggle with the people of Israel, and he needs to see God's faithfulness. He needs this assurance that God's with him. So he asks God to, to show him himself, show him his love. And, and God responds, okay, here's what I'm going to do. You, uh, I'm going to put you into this rock. I'll put my hand over you. I'm going to pass by, and you're going to see my back. But you can't see my face because Why? No one can see my face and live. This is Moses who's asking for this. 
Moses is the mediator between God and over a million Israelites. This is the Moses who's on the mountain talking with God for 40 days. This is the Moses that later in Numbers, God says to him, or says about him, he says, I I talk to Moses differently. I talk to him like a friend, face to face. But clearly God means something different there than what he's talking about, about seeing his face. And so what we're getting here, what God is communicating with his glory cloud coming here into the tabernacle is that we need to understand there is a level of intensity to God's glory that we are never going to be able to bear. Not even in heaven, not after eternity. Because God is infinite and and we're not. And so we simply can't sustain encountering God in all of his fullness. We we would be undone. And interestingly, this is typically the reaction of people, even when they, in the Old Testament, they encounter some small portion of God, and they walk away with this feeling of, I'm done. I'm going to die. Because that that was too much. And so we have to appreciate from this that there is a sense of awesomeness and greatness to this God that we worship. We can't even bear to see God in all of his fullness. I want to look now through these these different layers of the tabernacle that constitute kind of concentric circles as you go outward. So there's these expanding circles that grant people more and more access to God the farther out you go. All right, so in the center, right, we talked about you have the holy place, or this is the holy of holies, and it had the Ark of the Covenant and these cherubim on top of it, and no one can go there. You, you got the high priest one time a year. And, and so this was the most intense, most extreme presence of God that you could possibly encounter. And you need to remember that. We'll come back to that later. Uh, And then you have the holy place outside of that. And and here in the holy place, you have things like there's this lampstand, and there's this bread, or there's this table with the bread of the presence, and the priest could eat from this and kind of commune with God. Uh, And you also had the altar of incense, which we're told in Revelation represents the prayers of the saints. And so hopefully what, what we're already seeing is that there's things here in the holy place that we as Christians now have access to because of what Jesus has done in in communing with him, in in praying to him. So uh, we'll talk more in a minute. You go outside the holy place, there you have the courtyard. And and this is the largest space thus far, right? Every circle you go out, more access, and it's also getting bigger. All right, and so the courtyard, that's where any Israelite could come uh, any member of, of God's people could come and, and they would bring a, a sacrifice. As long as they were clean, they could come there and bring a sacrifice and they would have the priest usually offer this, present it to God in the right way on their behalf. And, and then along the edge of the courtyard, you have another fence, right? Or, or there's the other word for this is veil. It's interesting. Uh, it's actually the same word that's used every time at every one of these layers, interchangeably, veil, fence, it's the same thing for all of these layers. So you have this last layer is the fence, and outside of that, you just have, that's where everybody lived, they, they worked, they went about their daily lives, 
uh, and if you were an unclean person, that's it. You, you couldn't ever get past uh, that initial barrier of the tabernacle. So I, I want to talk about how Jesus has torn down all of these barriers between us and God. But before we get there, I think we have to have a little bit of a better picture of what do these barriers represent for us, right? as far as classes of people. And you essentially, you've got these three barriers that are making up three classes. You've got your holy people, you've got your clean people, you've got your unclean people. And what's interesting today is that I think we can actually use those same categories, those same terms, to break down any culture, any group, any subculture, those same classes exist. You have your holy people. And you know, these would be your celebrities or your elites, right? Or the people in, in power that everybody looks up to, everybody honors, everybody takes their cues from these people, but you don't necessarily want to be those people uh, because you can see, well, that there's a lot of ways their lives are harder or you know, they take on more risk. And then you have the clean people. And this is the largest group. This is where most of us probably just want to be. We, we just, you know... Uh, don't need anything to be too special about me. I don't want all those added burdens and responsibilities, but uh, happy to just be clean, uh, you know, just average. And at least I'm not one of those unclean people. I don't want to be that. All right, and then uh, you, you have your unclean people. A number of ways you can become unclean. You know, maybe you are born with some sort of defect or disease. You, you live your entire life as unclean. You have to live outside the camp. Right, and then you have ways that uh, clean people, you know, regular people, can become unclean. Right, and this typically happened through some sort of association with death. Either uh, a dead body, a dead animal, blood, disease, any of those things, through, they're, they're all associated with death, can make you unclean. All right, and then once you're unclean, you've got to do something to become clean again. And this is usually you, you washed yourself and you brought some kind of offering. And, and these categories, these distinctions also, also are operative. Right? Any kind of group, any sort of culture, you have people who, from that group's perspective, are permanently unclean. Right? They will never be let in. They're always going to be thought of as outsiders. They're always going to be thought of as less than. And then, of course, you have ways where you have people who are inside, clean, can become unclean. Right? Either you know, something you say or something you do, you offend the wrong person, you befriend the wrong person. Now, maybe you just you say something embarrassing um, say something really, really dumb. Like you're, let's say you are in, uh, or you're trying to get into uh, a group of people who love cars. And that's their marker. And, and you say the kind of thing that I would say, you know, like it's about you know, how much horsepower the carbuncle has. Right? And, and you know, everybody look at you. You're unclean uh, for a while, and, and you need to just sit in your corner of shame uh, and become clean again. Uh, and, and then, of course, you have, in another sense, right, there's people who something happens to you right, that makes you feel ashamed, makes you feel unworthy. And, and so we're all familiar, I think, with this idea of what it is to be unclean, to feel unclean, right? or at least to, to fear becoming that. 
And the issue here is, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that in the world that we live in, it's often not very clear what the rules are for how you become unclean, right? The, how you fall out of favor. And then, perhaps even worse, right, is that it's even less clear, well, how do you now get back in? How do you become clean? How, how do you regain favor? And uh, we tend to have terribly, woefully inadequate answers to that. Right? And, and what that means is that you have a ton of people who walk around every day with enormous amounts of regret or shame, feelings of self-loathing, or at least self-disappointment. And I just have no idea, well, what, what do I do with that? How do I handle this? How do I get back? And, you know, I think one of the ironies in this, I think, is that there's a lot of people, right, who think of, they view the church as, you know, the church is this backwards, repressive institution, you know, keeps people in line through guilt and shame, right, that, you know, and, you know, manipulates them through that. And, uh, certainly, there have been churches who do that. There's churches who still do that, uh, and, and that's a problem. But I think that the reality is the world that we live in today is incredibly good at, and, and really, I would say, um, cruel and ruthless at producing shame and guilt as a way of keeping people in line. Right? Or, or punishing you when, you when you say the wrong thing, or you do the wrong thing, you're, you're cut off. You're done. And the, the difference is with Christianity, or with Jesus, or, or with a healthy church, there's a way back in. <laughs> there's a way that you are made right with God, whereas in, in the world that we live in, typically there's not. You're just kind of done. Right? You're, you're, you're kind of just dead at that point. And, you know, unfortunately, one of the, the answers that the world will try to offer, right, or maybe the best attempt at one, is also pretty insufficient. Because the world will say, okay, well, uh, you need to love yourself. You just need to accept yourself. And we all know that's insufficient. Right? Because if you, you feel ashamed, you feel cut off, what you need is to be accepted by someone else. You need someone that you love or you need a group of people that you respect to welcome you and forgive you and, and bring you back in. And that is precisely what Jesus has done. That's what he's done for us. And that's precisely what enables us as Christians to do that for other people. Through, through this simple but hard process called repentance and forgiveness. Now, you may remember when Jesus died on the cross, there's something that happens in the tabernacle or in the temple. You remember what happens? That the moment Jesus dies, the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what is God trying to say by that? What is he trying to communicate and make absolutely clear by doing that at the precise moment that Jesus dies? He's saying, 
there's no more boundaries. There, there's no more layers. There's no more uncleanness. There's no more guilt or shame. There's no more priests. That in Jesus, there is a way for every person, every single person, to be made not only clean, but actually come into the holy of holies, into this close personal relationship with God through Jesus. Jesus is the way out of shame and into acceptance. And this brings us to the last point, which is, who are you today if you're a Christian? Are you unclean? Are you clean? Are you holy? If you are a Christian today, you are holy. You are a holy people. You, you are a royal priesthood. That's 1 Peter 2.9. And yet, at the same time, I'm willing to bet most of you probably don't feel too holy. <laughs> You're probably not looking back at your previous week thinking, you know, I had a really holy week this past week, let alone a, a holy life. Now, this is the tension of the Christian life. That you, through God's Spirit, are becoming more and more what you already are. You are holy in God's sight. You are perfect. You are clean. You're totally accepted because of what Jesus has done. But God doesn't just give you this you know, stamp of approval and then he's done with you. You are being made to look like and to act like more and more what you really are in your deepest self because of His Spirit. And so each of these truths is really, really important for us to bear in mind. Right? That you are holy and you are being made holy. Both of those are true. we got to remember both of those things. So on the one hand, it is enormously, enormously reassuring to remember and to know that you are holy. Right? You don't ever have to think, you don't ever have to worry, you know, I've, I've just done too much. And, you know, God has to just kind of be done with me. He's got to be fed up uh, with giving me chances, and that's it. Right, right now, as a Christian... You have access to the Holy of Holies. You have been washed. There has already been this sacrifice of Jesus to atone for your sins and your failures. And you have a communion table today set up for you that the only condition for that is you accept Jesus as your priest. And you have this connection with God because of Him. That His holiness is given to you. So, so you're holy. And when you remember that, when you know that, that you are holy, it also means you don't ever have to worry about judgment or condemnation from other people. Because it doesn't matter. Because Jesus has said, you are holy. Now, I've had a number of people over the years, and they, they find out I'm a pastor, right? and they'll say, well, uh, you know, I, I could never set foot in a church. The church would burn down. You wouldn't want that. Right? Or uh, as soon as I step into a church, I'd be struck by lightning. And you know, in, 
a sense, I know what they mean. I know what they're saying. Uh, and in a sense, there's a, there's a way that that feeling is right. It's what we've been talking about. There's this feeling of, I'm unclean. I've got problems. But in another sense, obviously they don't understand Christianity at all. Christianity is Jesus, the only person who is truly clean, the only person who is truly holy, taking our uncleanness on him so that people like you and me, unclean people, would never have to worry about coming before God, never have to worry about being accepted by God. And on the other side of this, it's very important to bear in mind the the truth that you are being made holy. You are being made holy as a Christian. And I think this truth helps us in two practical ways. I'm just going to close these two two ways I think that that helps us. Uh, And the first one is, it helps you, helps me from uh, getting our expectations out of whack when you mess up or somebody else messes up. We're tempted to think when that happens, well, I must not be a Christian. Or that person must not be a Christian. And that's not the case. You and every other believer is in the process of being made holy. And most of the time, I'll go and say all the time, that is a painfully slow process. So, second way that this helps us, right? This truth that you are being made holy. I think it helps us from becoming apathetic and self-satisfied. Because I think that if we're honest, you know, you and I, if it were up to us, we'd be perfectly happy just being clean. I'm good. I'm good. Just I'm a clean person. That's fine. I don't need to be one of these holy people. And there's, there's a good reason for that, because we intuit that the process of being made holy is pretty painful. Uh, so we don't want that. But you know, the way that you are made clean, maybe you're wondering this, right? At uh, this side of the cross, the way that you as a Christian get clean is by coming clean. You get clean today by coming clean. You come clean to God, you come clean to other people, and you receive his forgiveness, you you receive uh, his acceptance, and you ask God for his help to make you holy. Now, holiness, I think we we sometimes have a confused idea of what holiness means. The, The word holy literally just means set apart. And so, that means that if you are a Christian, God is going to take you and I through this process that we are called daily to engage in, through which God makes us truly exceptional. Right? He makes us to look more and more like what you're supposed to look like. That's what he's doing. He is making you into a version of yourself that is better than the best version that your spouse thinks you should be or your parents think you should be. It's better than that. That's what God's doing. 
And so let's pray that we can be comforted right, by this assurance that we have that you are holy, that that is unshakable, and yet also that we can engage in this process that God has for us, that, that he's doing in us, being made holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, in Jesus, we have no more barriers. There is no more tabernacle. There is no more temple. Uh, there's no more layers and layers and layers. We've tried to, got to try to get through in order to hear from you, to receive you, to, to, to gain access to you. We don't have to become an Israelite. We, we don't have to become circumcised. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. Lord, but you've taken away these barriers all through Jesus. We, we just come to you all the time because of him. And we ask that you would give us the strength, give us the, the hope and, um, and enjoyment of the process that you are doing in our lives of, of making us what we should look like. In Jesus' name, amen.